Welcome to London Stock Exchange's Tech IPO podcast, the oracle for tech founders looking to take their companies public. I'm your host, Stephen Kelly, chairperson of Tech Nation. Today, I'm so excited to speak with Sarah Murray, founder and chief executive of Big Technologies. In July 2021, Sarah took Big Technologies public on the London Stock Exchange. Big Technologies has created a leading technology platform for remote monitoring of individuals. Now, we know that Sarah and her team have only just scratched the surface on their growth plans. And today, we'll be chatting with Sarah about how she successfully scaled the company internationally, what led to the IPO on the London Stock Exchange, and where she sees the company growing in the future. So Sarah, it's amazing to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Stephen. Well, it's great to be here and it's great to see you after such a long time. Maybe just um, tell you about yourself and, and how you came up with the brilliant idea of Buddy. So the, the story of how I came up with Buddy is quite well known. It's, you know, it's been in the press in the, in the past and it's sort of on our website. Um, and people sort of say to me occasionally, is it really true? Um, and it really is true. So I was thinking about what to do next, having sold a previous business. And, and I started thinking about when my daughter was very small and I'd done that thing many parents do, turn around in the supermarket, heart-stopping moment, she's not there. And um, somebody stepped forward and said, don't, don't worry, madam, we'll sweep the shop. You can stand at the exit of the car park and look in the back of the cars as they leave. You know, I was utterly horrified. So I completely ignored him, obviously, <laughs> ran screaming around the shop and, and I found her in a few minutes. So I was very lucky. But it got me thinking with modern technology, why can't I give her something that means I can find her whenever I need to? So I tried to buy something, couldn't find anything and thought, well, how hard can it be? I'll make one. Obviously, if I'd known then what I know now, I wouldn't have dreamt of setting off on that path. Any advice that you'd give um, high growth CEOs out there in, in terms of how they represent their products and companies in the market? Well, those high growth CEOs already know what they're doing and that's why they're so successful. But, you know, everybody knows you, you have to absolutely take care of that brand. And that really is about thinking. I think that probably the, the best learning I've ever had is um, going into a new market. You tend to follow the people who come and approach you. So someone comes and, and says, can I take your product to this market? And because they're the first to ask you, you tend to go with that. Um, and that's the thing I'd say, stop there and think, well, if somebody's interested in entering that market, I should be. Are these the right guys to do that with me? So don't just go with them because they're the first. Yeah, starting a business, Sarah, is hard enough. Uh, and you personally have sort of scaled and successfully uh, had companies bought multiple businesses, including Confuse.com. So I'm sure the audience will be very familiar with some of the brand names you've been associated with in the past. Um, in terms of your previous ventures, what are your thoughts that sort of went through your head as you scaled those businesses and you achieved great success? Well, I've always only had one mantra, really, which is, what am I selling to somebody? You know, who's my customer? What do they want? And all of the businesses that I've started and grown have been around a customer who's wanted something that either didn't exist or they're just not happy with it. So I've been able to give them something better. So I spend all of my time really talking to my customers about what they like, what they don't like, and how I can improve that. And I have that red rag to a bull thing. If somebody says that can't be done, I, I really want to do it. Um, that does mean I've had some spectacular failures where I've tried to build something that just hasn't been possible. Um, but I, I think you really do only learn from those failures. So that's been great as well. So even today, all I really spend my time doing is talking to customers and, and trying to, to help them to improve what they're doing. 
That's great. Yeah, I, I've heard you described as, as an insurgent for customers. And uh, I think that's customer obsession is so vital to building great companies. And obviously, growth companies growing at, what, 50%? Yeah. Uh, compound growth sustainably have to have customers at the heart of the business. And the chief executive leading the flag really is um, so important. Yeah, because um, that, that growth on. really comes from customers selling to other customers, doesn't it? Yeah. You, you know, you're massively increasing your sales force if all of your customers are selling your behalf. I mean, you'll have seen that at Sage. Yeah, and how how do you um how do you actually capture that and bottle it for all your current employees and colleagues and the future employees to have that same culture? God, I wish I knew. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, but I think that as a leader, you do you create a culture. And I was so touched when when we IPO'd, um, my team came and did a presentation for me a couple of weeks later and they produced a video and it was just lots of individuals saying what the RIPO meant to them and so many of them talked about Sarah as an inspirational leader and a, and, and a culture setter and, and how they love the culture at our firm so I think that you know as the CEO you know you're setting that culture the more time you spend talking to everybody the more you're spreading that. I think also that's interesting for for women entrepreneurs because we 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 are sort of less confident in telling people you know that we think it should be this way. We're much more interested in listening to how other people think it should be. Um, I think there's a real difference there. So I'd say to all those women out there as well, get out there and and talk to everybody about the way you think it is, and and you know be brave. Yeah, I think that's amazing advice. So when you go back to thinking about um, the event on July 28th, when, when did you actually start thinking about going public? Buddy um, was slightly different from any company I've had before in that from day one, I'd get random letters, emails, contacts, people saying, how do I buy shares in your company? And you know, having to go back and explain, actually, it's a private company, you can't buy shares in it. But that sent me on a trail of thinking this is clearly a company that should be owned by a wider um, wider base of people. And the only way to achieve that is to be public. So it was always slightly in the back of my mind. But also because I'd started companies before and I've got a little bit older, I, I wasn't sure I had the appetite for doing a startup again. So this one I really wanted to be a grow up and hold it for the longer term. And being in the public market enables me to do that. So I'm, you know, I'm not a seller on the IPO and my, my stake beforehand, my stake afterwards pretty much the same. So I can hold on, but enable a lot a wider audience to to take a part in what I'm building. That's amazing. And uh, in terms of uh, that process, how, how did you go around selecting your team? I guess your advisors and the board, or all the various things you need to get ready for as a public company. Yeah. So we um, we IPO'd. Um, very well, I believe, uh, at the end of July this year. And if I look back to November last year, we didn't have a chairman, we didn't have a CFO. <laughs> so if I'd approached people then, they'd have sort of laughed at me. Uh, but I'd been looking for a chairman for a very long time, probably two or three years, and I had interviewed an awful lot of people. Um, and I was looking for someone who wasn't going to come and wade in with an opinion, but was going to really draw a team together and, and tease out of us what we believed was the best option in any given scenario. Um, and it took me a while to find that. And um, so Simon Collins came on board and he used to um, he used to run KPMG here in the UK. He's an extremely measured man, very smart, and I have huge respect for him. So got very lucky with finding him and he was just introduced by somebody. And then the same with CFO, which must have been, a, you know, six months later, um, Darren, who had been CFO at Volex and then, then spent, you know, six months basically um, coming out of that, 
um, was looking for something new and was a perfect fit, gets on brilliantly with our team, thinks in the same way we do, and we just got very lucky with similar culture. So finding the right people was about casting that net widely, asking everybody who I knew, do you know somebody who could be the right person for us? And then going through all of those <laughs> those meetings until you find the right one, a bit like dating. Um, advisors was a lot more straightforward because I was the SID at Boohoo until sort of April, April, May last year. And so I knew Zeus reasonably well from there and they'd always done an extremely good job. So I you know, just rang them up and said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. And, uh, and then we decided to, to go sole broker because we weren't seeking to do a massive IPO and create loads of hype and spread the noise very widely. We really wanted to pick some strategic investors who would really support us through the next stage of our growth and have quite a small number of, of investors. So we we did a sort of pre-IPO, went to talk to a small number and everybody was really interested. So that worked really well. And then in terms of lawyers and accountants, we again, we got lucky with Crow because they um, they helped us through the accounting report and they were absolutely fantastic. I could, definitely could not complain about them at all. They got to know the business really quickly and did a great job. But the, you know, the shout out person is Shan um, from Hill Dickinson who had moved to Hildekinson fairly recently from Mishcon and he was the lawyer who supported us through the IPO and he was absolutely brilliant. I mean, he worked harder than anybody else and got everything done in, in record time and, you know, he was absolutely fantastic. So a bit of luck and a bit of group of people who were really experienced and hardworking. That's amazing. And uh, I know Simon Collins, I think he's brilliant. So building that team of um, high cadre capability and then keep them together. I think a lot of the audience probably um, wouldn't expect the IPO to be very glamorous, as it is. But it, it's just interesting when you reflect now over the last year, just how hard and relentless has that kind of journey getting to the IPO been and, and what's it taken in terms of keeping the team together and keeping them focused? I'd quite like to slightly dispel the hard and relentless because I, I, part of the reason I'm sitting here is because I want to throw away that idea that as a female CEO, it's hard to IPO your company. Um, it really isn't. And, and people should be thinking about doing that and, and get on that trail and do it. So yes, it's some work over you know two or three months because all of those little things that you really ought to have in place in your business that you've been a bit lax about because you've been focused on dealing with the latest fire and, and dealing with customers and staff. All of those things need to be brought together and they need to be brought together very quickly um, and gone over with a fine tooth comb by, by lots of different advisors. Um, so there is a lot of work, but that, that really happens in a two to three month period before the date, because if it happens a long time before that, you'd have to repeat it. Um, and that is no different really from the process of bringing a big PE on board. In fact, you know, the PEs would say it's a lot less work to take a PE on board. I would say it's actually very similar. And the end result when you, if you IPO instead of going the PE route is, is that you've got a, a whole group of investors who are absolutely backing you, supporting you, talking about how brilliant you are instead of one. Um, and so you don't have that single master, you've got a wider group, which which gives you effectively wide mentorship. And, and that's very useful. So if, if you're out there and you're thinking maybe you should IPO, I would say don't be put off by people say it's who say it's really hard. It really isn't. It's really doable. So go for it. And it sounds like you built good governance, good business, integrity, process systems, and obviously high quality people yeah. sort of from the get-go. So there wasn't a lot of kind of catch-up to do uh, in terms of the process. Obviously, a lot of filings and diligence, as you say, uh, any event would gather that same 
uh, experience. So what what advice now sitting here today, Sarah, and uh, I guess bathed in the sunshine of having done the IPO, would you give um, to any other founders out there across the UK in terms of your IPO experience and going public? Well, I think probably the best advice is to really think about what you want the outcome of the IPO to be, because you do get into a sort of IPO track once you stay, say you're going to do it and you get your advisors on board of people pushing you into a certain direction, which is the way it's always done. And so many people said to me, oh, but this is the norm. This is the market norm. And you have to keep that hat that you've always had while you were growing your business of challenging that market norm and saying, well, hang on a minute, that's not the way I want it. You know, I don't want 50 investors, I want 12. Um, and stick with that. And and when people start to realize, actually, you are pretty sure about where you're going, then, then the, you know, the, they'll follow in the same way they do when you're building your business. So um, really, my only advice, when you get those advisors around the table, don't be diverted from your path, stick to where it is you want to end up. And that's great advice, actually. And that, that would be if we had um, people like Mark Benioff here today, he'd say the same things, you know, built a $200 billion company at Salesforce and all about focusing on the outcomes. Yeah. And I think that's good advice, Sarah. And just looking at how the kind of movie plays out, we're, we're weeks away from the IPO. Um, I think you launched on day one at $577 million market uh, capitalization valuation and then had a, a fantastic first day, which is always nice. And then you've just gone from strength to strength since then. Um, how, how does it feel in terms of your, your expectations when you look back in the summer to how it's actually been realized and particularly the amazing uh, reception from the investors? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. I um, Looking back in the summer, I felt it was a little bit like throwing the dice. I thought that the, the valuation was, was reasonable, but I could personally justify it to myself that I was thinking if I was an outsider, would I invest at this price? And I thought I definitely would. Um, but it was it was also reasonable for sellers. So I thought it was a properly fair buyers and sellers meeting. Um, and I thought either the market will really get what we do and it will race off and it will get up, go up fairly quickly, or it will just be stagnant for a long time. And I really wasn't sure which. And of course, the market had got what we were doing, which is I was impressed by that. And so the, the valuation has grown. Yeah, and I, one of the things when I was um, back at Sage, actually, I, I felt a responsibility to the UK. And I was disappointed that, you know, Sage was the only technology company on the FTSE 100 uh, software company. And I always aspired for the UK to have dozens of tech companies knocking on the door of the FTSE 100 and, and potentially like 30, 40% of the market being made up of these high growth, fantastically sustainable businesses. So now we've got a company um, that you lead, Big Technologies, that could be, you know, FTSE 250, um, gone from a valuation of half a billion to over a billion as we speak. And um, But you chose to go on the AIM marketplace. What, what was the, the rationale behind that? Um, well, it's a straightforward rationale, which is AIM is inheritance tax <laughs> protected. So as a private company, I can leave my shares in the company to my daughter and um, and there's no inheritance tax on that. And that's still true with AIM, but the main market, that isn't the case. So that made it a straightforward decision for me. That's very, very authentic and very <laughs> honest of you, Sarah. In and fact, I you know, one of the decisions, one of the reasons we had to IPO when we did was because we were going to get too big. And I know that if we'd, if we'd grown to the billion before floating, there would have been a lot of pressure to go to the main market. That's great. And uh, obviously, the 
the A market has served you brilliantly and I think will do in the future with great delivery and future growth. In terms of um, if we look at the UK ecosystem, I think historically, just thinking about this maybe 10 years ago, uh, there would have been criticism uh, around the depth of European analysts and investors uh, understanding technology. But I know it's early days, but what's been your experience? You've got some fantastic investors like Lions Trust and Aberdeen. What's your, your view of the UK, I guess, maturity and really appreciation of technology companies? Actually, I'm extremely impressed by the UK investors. And I, I was reading something very recently with the whole Theranos scandal going on in, in the US. And I, I met Elizabeth Holmes um, back in the day. Um, and I, I think there's you know, there's a real problem with investing in stuff that you really don't understand. I think it's been Warren Buffett's mantra from day one. You must only invest in things you understand. So I think it's quite reasonable that European investors and particularly the the British ones I've met want to understand what it is they're buying. Now I'm in, I'm in the fortunate position that I can explain very easily. You know, if we're in the in the criminal justice market, this is a GPS device that goes around an offender's ankle and and enables an authority to to know where they're going. Everyone can understand that very easily. Um, there might not have been L2 20 years ago and. 15 years ago, I did have to explain what GPS was, but now we all have it in our car and we wouldn't think twice about it. So I think that um, investors in the UK and certainly in the London market are absolutely capable of understanding the technologies that are presented to them and have a real appetite for it. And I think we're proving that. That's brilliant, Sarah. And I, I just think um, the other thing you touched on earlier um, is around women entrepreneurs and just seeing the success uh, of what's happened in the UK has been really heartwarming. And now I think you're the third uh, woman CEO uh, founder to actually launch a business on the public markets this year. What, what does that mean for you? Yeah, so on that one, you know, the question you asked earlier about the hard and relentless IPO route, um, you know, that that will put women off. And uh, and that's why I'm here to say, don't be put off because it really isn't hard. And uh, given most of the things most women are capable of doing every day, I think it's, it's you know, it's a walk in the park. I agree. And it's great to see people like Poppy at Dark Trace and, and you. And I, I think you're iconic, I'd describe you in terms of, I said, the shadow that you cast and the inspiration you'll be given to, you know, teenagers and the next generation of founders, entrepreneurs, including obviously women. Is is there any, when you look back at your younger self 20 years ago and you look at yourself now, is there any advice you would have given yourself that's different to how you played out the, the movie? Wow, that's a good question. Um, probably not because um, I am where I am because of a lot of mistakes that I've made and and as I said earlier, I think it's important to make those mistakes. That's how you learn stuff. So life is just a, a, a creation of, of learnings and, uh, and I've had plenty of them. So I, I wouldn't want to say anything to my younger self because I wouldn't want to scare her about what the future held. That's interesting. And, you know, I think um, this podcast is a great platform. And, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm currently chair of Tech Nation. My board is actually 50-50 gender. Um, women and men, and that was quite a deliberate choice. But I, I see the future in the UK having uh, many, many more IPOs of tech companies, many more 
uh, companies like yourself on the FTSE 100, and actually many more women leaders, boards, really populated and, and driving towards that 50-50 uh, perspective on gender and, and all the other lenses of inclusion and diversity. Um, when, when you look at that, what, given this platform, what, what do you think the UK needs to do for all of us to actually achieve that vision? Wow. Okay. <laughs> Not the difficult. That's a difficult for it, question. Sarah, there's so much um, to do. Okay. So this slightly takes me back to blaming the mothers, um, and a lot of women probably laugh when they hear this. But um, we're very gentle with our sons. You know, we we say, you know, our son sets the table, and we say, congratulations, that's fantastic, you're brilliant. Our daughter sets the table, and and it's just nothing is said because it's expected. So mm. we, we've in the past created these expectations of roles that have made women just less confident. And I've got some amazing women in my my business, but I still have to keep telling them that they can really do it they, they, and encouraging them. Whereas the guys just have that innate confidence because their mothers have told them how brilliant they are from the moment you know from the moment they were born. So I'd say to the mothers out there, just be so much more confident with your daughters, push them forward. And and I see that happening. And certainly my daughter's generation, and she's twenty eight now, and she's grown up in a in a in a world where boys and girls sat in class together and just respected each other as equals. Um, and that's a real change. So th- as that generation comes through, then I think that change will happen naturally. And it's early days in your IPO journey. Um, is there anything kind of that you see is changing in the company post-IPO and, and uh, what the future holds from here? Actually, nothing's really changed, which is exactly as I was expected to be. We obviously have um, sort of more reporting to do, and that makes us think more about quarterly numbers, which we've never done in the past. But I keep saying to the team, if, if they say, well, you know, we, we've got to do this slightly different because I, I, I just say so many of the new investors said to me when we IPO'd, Sarah, you've built a great company. Don't change anything. So we're not going to change it. We're just going to behave like we did before. And if that means we have a bad quarter because we're investing more for something, we just explain that to investors. And I think we were fairly clear when we IPO'd about our long-term strategy. And if people want to judge us on our quarterly results, then you know that, that may cause some, some investors to change whether or not they want to invest. Um, but at the end of the day, nothing's changed. And we're just, we've got a higher profile now and more cash in the bank. Oh, that's great. And did you get a perspective? I've talked to a lot of particularly US founders where some of the colleagues think the IPO is the end of the journey, whereas obviously, you know, and I know it's just the start of another chapter in the journey of the company. And looking forward, obviously, you talked about quarterly reporting and that drumbeat of performance and growth and achieving everything for the shareholders, as well as all the other stakeholders of the customers you've touched on. Uh, do, do the folks in the company kind of totally get that? They do, yeah. And in fact, they're much more interested in the shares and their options that they had. Um, so that, you know, a lot of people have, have made some serious money and, you know, life changing in many cases. And so they're really excited about that. So for the first time, I think people really get what those options meant. Um, and now look at, well, where are we going next? And how do we, how do we grow that even more? Yeah, no, and I applaud that, and I think, um, and I think what you've done actually, Sarah, is amazing. Not only building a great culture in the company, uh, and when I saw you in government, building it all around customers, and also being that insurgent for not only uh, the customers but also changing the world for a better place. So that's very powerful. Um, so it, in terms of um, 
what I'd love to do if you indulge us is a sort of quick fire round of um, just uh, a couple of questions uh, that you can kind of answer very swiftly. So what do you like doing when you're not running your public company? Well, I'm a helicopter pilot. So I like to fly friends to lunch or um, there's a guy that I fly with um, down in Mallorca where we we go and try and land on a very small rock in the sea or <laughs> things like that that are just really fun. Um, and while I'm doing that, I really can't think about work. Okay. Well, when when did you get the bug around helicopters? Um, I got my license in summer of 2010. Uh, oh. The first time I, I really tried it was in 2009. And the first time I flew, I, I felt this grin across my face and that was it. I was hooked. Wow, Awesome. And um, when, you, when you're either in the helicopter or, or not, and maybe on a scheduled airline, where's your, where's your favorite holiday destination? I love Baja California. So there's a small place called San Jose del Cabo right at the bottom there in Mexico. And it's just heaven. So it, there's a hotel that I go to that overlooks the sea, which is the Sea of Cortez. Um, Jacques Cousteau described it as, as the aquarium of the world. Um, you can look at the sea for 10 minutes and you'll see something jump out, a whale or a sea ray. Or, that's amazing. Wow. Looks awesome. Um, so if there was one person dead or alive that you could have coffee with, who, who would it be? <laughs> so I would have coffee with Robert Buckland, who is our current Minister for Justice, because I would love to ask him why, um, with all the other great ministries around the world, recognising how, how brilliant our technology is and embracing it and building the future of electronic monitoring, why UK Ministry of Justice doesn't want to. Well, I hope you're listening out there, Robert Buckland. <laughs> and uh, I definitely think you should uh, direct message uh, Sarah and get her in for a chat. And uh, actually, I'm sure you would see the justice system right for transformation to produce much better outcomes. And uh, you could be part of the solution there, Sarah. Um, so who would you say is your, your biggest mentor or biggest mentors? Okay, so I, I often get asked that question, who's your mentor? And I, I just don't have a mentor. Um, I've learned everything really by trial and error. Um, but, you know, I said my daughter's now 28 and from very small, I've always talked to her about what I was doing in business. And so she's got an extremely entrepreneurial head on her shoulders and she's on her third business already. Um, and so I, I really talk to her about stuff that, you know, those things where they're going around your head and you Either answer would be right, but you know, one will be a one could be a Harvard business case for failure and the other could be a Harvard business case for success. And you just can't see ahead of time what the answer is going to be. So I will generally talk to pretty much anyone I meet about something like that and, and see what the responses are. But she's very wise and understands sort of my motivations and therefore is able to really help me figure stuff out. It's fascinating. I'm going to do a little digression now because you said a couple of things. Your daughter on her third business at 28. Uh, and one of the things that I see very different from when I came back from the US in 2005 in the UK is this whole generation of serial entrepreneurs who have done two, three, four, five exits and not only sort of recycle their capital, but also recycle their expertise. You know, do, do you see in the UK just a richness? of talent and experience that wasn't there 10, 15 years ago. And how, how does that kind of give you a level of optimism? I absolutely do. So when I started my first business when I was 22, so a very long time ago, um, and people asked what I did, if I said I was an entrepreneur, they would kind of look at me, oh, she's unemployed, she can't get a job. It was not something positive. And that's wholesale change so that now everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. And I think 
I think it's not right that everyone should be an entrepreneur because it does it does require an irrational optimism that not everybody has um and and just amazing stamina to keep going um when things get when you know rocks get thrown at you and you have to jump over those hurdles but I I really see something totally different now there's so much funding available for startups there's so much mentoring available for startups government is really behind helping you there are you know Nesta and Innovate UK and everybody else really trying to to fund great ideas so there's it's very easy to walk into a group of people where you can get real support to, to set you off on that track and and I remember when I first started the one thing you don't have is any money you have no money because you have no income yet from your customers you need an office you need you know everyone talks about starting up in the garage or the bedroom but many people don't have you know don't have parents with a, a spare garage or a spare room for you to to build their your business in so there were so many people starting with absolutely nothing and, and back then the prince's trust was the only way to get any money and it was a sort of six month application process to get two and a half thousand pounds by which time your business would have failed because you couldn't pay your pay your rent um, and and things have changed now so that there is the opportunity for anybody who really wants to do it to get out there and do it I think the only thing stopping people is the confidence to get started so that's a great message so if if we're back to the quick fire round who would be the most admired person that you hold up so I don't really have a most admired person because I don't really sit thinking about that um Probably the people I admire most are some of the people in my business who have worked so hard to go from, you know, from nowhere in life to really create a, a world for themselves that's different. And, and um, there are a few of those that I can name that are absolutely brilliant and I'm inspired by them and very proud to have them in my team. Um, and then my customers, I've got customers who were brave and, and stood out there and said, we're going to try this stuff, even though you know it's barely working. I remember the first major customer that we got said, we really like your tags. Can you make them work? And you know that's inspirational because then you really want to make them work. Um, and and also, I've also been backed by investors who've been so uh, you know, thoughtful and kind to us and supportive of us that you want to make money for them. So that that's my inspiration. It kind of works for everyone around me. That's brilliant. And today you really enjoyed the discussion we've had. So any final thoughts? Um, no, I, I, I don't have anything special to say other than, you know, to just remind people that IPOing in the London market is is not difficult. Um, being in London means that you've got all all your investors around you. You can approach them, talk to them very easily, and they're there and rooting for you locally and talking locally. So that's only going to help your business. So I'd say get out there and get it done. I think it's brilliant. So Sarah, it's um, amazing to talk to you today, and I'm just struck by on the day of listing that that phrase aim big. Uh, big technologies, but the heart of that is Buddy, which is created to keep our children safe, first of all, and then us all in a safer community that we're very proud of. And I think you've built a great company. And I'm just absolutely delighted with the IPO and the success, subsequent success in the following weeks. And I wish you all the best, good fortune in your adventures ahead. Thank you very much indeed, Stephen. It's been really brilliant chatting with you.